Hello, you are listening to Inside the Box, the podcast where current research and museum objects serve as starting points for conversations about our past, present and future. Welcome to the podcast Inside the Box. Many classic and well-known games originated in India, such as chess, ludo, which is known as fia med knuff in Swedish, and snakes and ladders, and they all spread all over the world. But playing cards from India never gained the same global popularity as these other games and are a bit unknown outside of India. So today we will explore the world of Indian playing cards. Let's go! With me today to do this we have a special guest. We are joined by Jakob Schmidt Madsen, doctor of Indology and a game researcher from the University of Copenhagen. A warm welcome! Thank you very much for inviting me. And my name is Björn Lindgren and I work as an educator here at the Museum of World Culture. Let's go. And as we usually do, we will have a look what is inside the box to see what object we brought from the museum's collections today. So let me see what, what are we looking at. It seems to be a deck of cards. And the cards, they are round and they are uh, beautifully patterned, in my opinion. Very colorful. And uh, the objects on the cards are, uh, it seems to be flowers, suns, moons, and some kind of creatures. Please tell us, uh, Jacob, what, what are we looking at? What are these kind of colorful, beautiful cards? Well, we're looking at a deck of uh, Ganjifa cards. And these are cards that, judging here from, from the style of the cards, that originate in the eastern Indian state of Orissa. And the specific deck that you have here uh, is a deck that consists of eight different suits. And it is themed um, around a, a popular legend uh, in the state of Orissa. And It's a legend which involves a hero called Arjun uh, and the god Vishnu. And you can see here on the on the court cards, the king card shows this sort of fantastical composite creature, which is like a, a fable creature consisting of various parts of different animals. And the other card shows um, Arjun, the hero, standing there with his bow ready to shoot. And the story is that Arjun, he was sitting on a mountaintop meditating and he was disturbed by this creature that showed up and terrified of this strange composite fable creature. He just reached out for his bow and drew the string and was ready to shoot it right through the heart when he realized that what he was actually looking at was a manifestation of the god Vishnu who was appearing here in his universal form, and he was composed of all these different creatures, indicating that he was a representation of the entire world. And so instead, Arjun, he dropped his bow and folded his hands, and he uh, worshipped the god of Vishnu. So that is how we can see that this deck belongs to this specific part of uh, Orissa in India, because that's the place where this uh, legend really takes place and where we find this legend in the literature. Oh, interesting. So, so it seems like these particular playing cards... Two of the cards, as you described, kind of like the king and the queen in the Western playing cards. But here they are two mythological 
beings, maybe from Hinduism. Yes, I mean in in Ganjifa normally you only have two cards instead of you know, two court cards instead of three court cards like you have in the West. Like we have you know, the king and the queen and the knave or the jack in Western playing cards, but in the Indian playing cards you only have a king of a king and a queen, so to speak. And in this case, the king is Vishnu, the god in his universal form. And the queen is the is Arjun, uh, the hero who is meditating with the archer with the bow with with the bow with the bow yeah. And then you have it. It comes here in eight different suits. So again, in Western playing cards, we're used to having only four different suits, but here you have eight different suits. Um, yeah, each suit is a color. We have uh, blue, black, uh, orange, brown, uh, green, and, and so on. But on all the cards, there are a number of objects on them. Uh, so, for example, on the blue card, we have ten uh, suns, it looks like, like the sun in the sky. It seems to be ten suns and nine suns and eight suns. Is this the logic of the deck of cards that you have one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to the court cards, kind of like Western playing cards? Yes, the idea is the same. You have cards numbering from one to ten, and then you have two court cards in each suit. And here, the eight different suits, they are represented by these different symbols. And as you rightly say, there is the symbol of the sun, and you, that's the sort of yellow circle. And you also have the white circles, which uh, are the moon. Um, and then you have different other symbols. Some of them can be made out, and some of them cannot be made out. And there's really a reason for that, because this specific deck that you have here is a deck which, as I said, belonged to Orissa in the eastern part of India. But this is kind of later in the history of this game because it really migrated from the western part of India and it was associated with Islamic culture. So when this game arrived in Orissa, which was a very uh, strongly Hinduized culture, it was sort of morphed into something more Hinduistic. And some of these suit uh, names and suit icons were either not understood or they were willfully transformed into something else. And some of them is, is interesting, like you have in the Mughal deck of cards, you have a suit called Gulam, which means a slave or a servant, which refers to all the the courtiers uh, at the royal court. And Gulam in Orissa became Gulab, which is literally, it means rose water, but it's really a word that you use for a, a red rose normally. So you'll find that some of the cards have roses on them. Yeah, we, we have uh, roses on these white cards. Yeah. So that's connected to that. that that's actually ah. this, the servant suit, the gulam suit, which has been transformed into a rose suit because gulam and gulab sounds very different, sounds the same. Uh, and, and thus they were, they were confused. Um, there's another example Uh, there's a suit in the old Mughal set called Shamshar, which means a sword. And that doesn't have any meaning um, in, in any Indian language. So Shamshar became Someshvara, which is another game uh, name for the guard Indra. So just by looking at this little deck, you can really see how a game is transformed through culture and through being adapted into a new culture. So the court cards are changed into the story of Vishnu and Arjun, and the different suits are also adaptations uh, 
of Moogle suit names and icons, which are then uh, transformed into something else. And some of the icons, uh, which are very hard to make out what they are, is actually because they cannot really be made out what they are because they were just not understood. And so they were turned into abstract symbols uh, instead of representing anything concrete. Wow. Because I know, Jacob, that you have traveled in India and I know that you met, if I understand it correctly, one of the remaining Ganjifa makers, a man who still make uh, who makes these cards. Because from what I understand, these are not so common to find anymore, not even in India, these Ganjifa cards. Would you mind tell us about this uh, experience of yours? Yes, uh, this was uh, last winter when I was doing fieldwork in India. Um, and I was in, in eastern India and I was looking into the history of these Ganjifa cards. And as you rightly point out, these are becoming increasingly difficult to find in India. They're not really made in a lot of places anymore. And when they're made, they're usually made sort of for, for tourists or sometimes they're um, being sold as as not really cards because they're not necessarily recognized as cards. They have this round shape and they can basically look like anything. So I got a clue that there was a Ganjifa card maker in something called in a small place called Bishnupur, which is in um, West Bengal. That's the northeasternmost part of India. So I went out to this small town uh, to look up uh, this man called Sital Fushtar. And I found him and his home, which is also his workshop and which is also his shop where he's selling these carts uh, in the outskirts of this small town. And he is now the last remaining cart maker in the entire state of West Bengal. He sits and makes these cart by hand. And as he told me, he has tried to introduce his son to the art of playing cart making. Um, and, you know, he he can draw them, but he's not really that interested and he'd rather do something else. So meeting Sital there in his workshop was really like meeting the last remaining uh, representative of this long tradition of making these cards. But why is he the last one? Well... The popularity of the cards have been waning for a long time. Uh, these are uh, cards that are uh, that are handmade and that belong to a uh, tradition of playing cards that goes back hundreds of years, and they have been in competition increasingly. Actually, all the way back from the 16th century when they were first introduced, they have been in competition with what we know as Western playing cards which is the traditional deck of 52 cards. Um, and over time, they have just been overtaken by these cheap packs of Western playing cards that you can, you know... So they with spades, hearts, clubs, and these that are so common here in, in Europe. Yes, the, the same cards that can just, you know, be mass-produced without any effort. Whereas what you're looking at here with these Indian cards are huge decks of cards, like... Uh, the deck that you're looking at here at, on, in the box, for example, is 96 cards. And each of them have to be individually made uh, by someone. They have to be drawn. Each of them is a little painting onto itself. Some of them are very intricate and very detailed. Um, you have some decks of cards which has a lot of complicated imagery that needs to be put onto the cards. And it can take months to complete a whole deck of cards. So, so it sounds like he, how did he operate his business, this man that you met, if, he's, if it takes months to make just one deck? Well, it, it used to be a, a family 
business. You know, like the whole family would be involved in this business. So he belongs to a caste called the Chitrakars, which basically means the picture makers. And they trace their origin all the way back to the Mala kings, which were kings which ruled in this part of India for centuries. And it, his family has probably been producing carts for the royal courts uh, centuries ago. And back then, you would have the whole family engaged in it because the carts are made from cloth and waste paper. And so the material has to be prepared. They have to be cut out. They have to be prepared for painting. Someone has to do the outline. Something has to fill them in. It's a long process that involves many, many people. And then you would have the master painter who would be the one who deliver the final touches to the card. So, so what was usually a group of people making these cards is just this person doing all these steps by himself? Well, yeah, he mixes his own colors and he does have some help from his, you know, sons and his wife and so on. But you could sort of tell that uh, it was dwindling. It's, it's, he produces very few sets of cards nowadays, actually, because the court cards are the most beautiful of the cards because they have large pictures on them. So most people are actually just interested in getting the court cards. Uh, nobody really knows how to play the game anyway um, in, in those circumstances. So, you know, uh, most people will just want him to paint the beautiful court cards and they'll just, you know, buy those. And so there's really no point to make entire decks of cards if no one is really playing with them. Did you buy any cards from him? Well, when I was visiting him at the moment, uh, I, I didn't carry uh, nearly enough cash uh, to buy a full <laughs> deck oh, of cards it's, from it's, him. Is it, it that expensive? <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite expensive. Um, and But what, what I did then later, I was in uh, uh, Kolkata, where there is a shop which uh, sells you know, craft work from all over the state. And they also sold Kanjifa cards made by Sital. But, you know, as you um, might imagine, they only sold the court cards. So they only sold like a deck of these 10 court cards. And when I was excited to see them there, and I sort of wanted to tell them that I met this guy who actually made them. Um, but before I got around to that, uh, I found out that they didn't actually know that they were playing cards in the shop. So they suggested other practical uses for them and said, well, these are really good beer coasters, for example. Oh, nice. <laughs> It's a good combination, game and beer coaster. Yes. Uh, did you play Ganjifa with him when you met him? I did not play Ganjifa with him. And actually, I have never played Ganjifa. Oh, you have never played? <laughs> Why is that? Well, you know, uh, Ganjifa is, uh, is a very complex game and it's heavily based on memory. And it's full of little tiny exceptions and rules that make it very difficult to play and even Sital who is making these games and whose family has been involved in making these games for centuries he actually doesn't know how to play um, and in Bishnupur where he operates and where people play the game or used to play the game they play a version of the game for five players And there was a group of five players playing until recently, um, but one of those five players have now passed away. So there are now not enough people left in Bishnupur to actually make a full game of Ganjifa. Oh no. <laughs> so, um, but, but why is it complicated? I mean, you said there are special rules, and I mean, it's a, it's a deck of cards. How can it be so complicated? Well, the, the complicated thing is that the, the different suits 
they have uh, how to say this I mean the 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 game we we in western playing cards we're used to having a deck of cards and you can play any different number of games uh, with those cards and there are four suits and there are 10 numerals and three court cards in every deck and you you can play games with them and it's fine then when you meet Ganjifa you find these vastly enlarged decks i mean it's like 96 is the smallest deck of cards that you'll play with often they're much bigger than that and the game revolves heavily around memorizing so in western playing cards it's a more tactical game you have more options on what to play in Ganjifa the rules are very restrictive meaning that you have to play certain cards uh, if they're available to you so in that way you really need to know all the cards that have been played so far in the game and you need to draw out cards from the other players hands by knowing exactly what's in their in their hands through the uh, the act of memory so that in itself makes it very difficult uh, to, to play it. And beyond that, the rules of how the game works is also intricate. Like you will have in an eight-suited deck, for example, four suits, they go from one to ten, and then the two court cards. The four other suits, they go from ten to one, and then the two court cards. Well, so it's opposite. So they go opposite. Uh, so some go up and some go down. And um, if you come into sort of really intricate versions of the game, which suit goes up and which suit goes down depends on the time of day that you're playing the game or the time, yeah, the time of day that you're playing. What, so there are different rules if you play on, on, depending on what time it is. Yes. So, for example, if you're playing a game at night, uh, it will usually be in, in the Hinduized version, the, the person who has the Krishna card the god Krishna, he will be the leading player. Whereas in the playtime, in the daytime, it'll be the player who has the Rama card will be the leading player. And um, and you can also then have the suits that are associated with Krishna and the suits that are associated with Rama, and they can change their value depending on the time of play, a time of day that they're being played. So you you have this level of complexity that's added onto you trying to remember everything as it's being played plus there are all these little tiny rules that make the game mm, that gives the game flavor but that's also very difficult to remember like for example if you have the buddha card there's a set of deck of cards where buddha is one of the cards and for example you can never place the buddha on the ground you always have to place two cards below him to form his throne because buddha cannot sit on the ground and you know those are little sort of details that doesn't necessarily have anything really to do with the game but you have to remember them while you play and it makes it um it makes it incredibly challenging i i have you know i have read the rules uh, i i think i know how to play the game but i have never found anyone who uh, would would want to sit down and play it with me really but i found simplified rules online that was like an a4 sheet it was understandable is that is that cheating i mean that you i guess you could read those rules and you can go to india and you can find sort of a group of old men sitting under a tree and try to sit down and play with them with your rules and i'm sure you wouldn't get too far uh, because there'd be a lot of rules how do you deal the cards how do you 
Um, how do you shuffle the cards? When do you shuffle the cards? What happens when you shuffle the cards? Sital, um, he told me that the way they played in uh, Bishnupur, um, the game's very long. It can last for hours. And there are, at various points in the game, you have to shuffle and reshuffle the cards. And sometimes the shuffling goes wrong. And when the shuffling goes wrong, it means you have to start over. And sometimes, you know, the shuffling goes wrong three quarters of an hour, an hour into the game. And you have to reset the whole game and, and begin anew. So, you know, it's a game that requires a lot of a lot of patience. Um, yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. But, but, but who, who, who has played this? Who played this without history? When did the cards arise and, and who was this game for? Well, the, the history of the game in India, the recorded history of the game in India begins in the early 16th century. That's where you have the establishment of the Mughal Empire. And these are um, Muslims arriving up from Central Asia from Uzbekistan and Afghanistan and they come into India and they form a huge empire uh, beginning in the in the early 16th century that lasts uh, all up until the British Raj um, in the mid 19th century and they record playing these Ganjifa games so that is the earliest record that we really have of uh, playing cards uh, in India um, and The cards at that point, the different suits were all associated with the Mughal court. So you would have a suit which referred to the leader of the palace guard. You would have a suit referring to the treasurer. You would have a suit referring to the musicians at the court, to the administration, and so on and so forth. Um, and and this game appears to have been incredibly incredibly popular at court and Later on in the 17th and 18th century, it was also very popular at Hindu courts throughout, especially central uh, and northern India. And the modes of the game was different depending on whether you played it at court or whether you played it in a more uh, rural setting. So at court, for example, you play with cards that were made from ivory or tortoise shell or leather, whereas in Uh, the poorer segments of society, you play with cards made from paper or cloth uh, or, or, or similar. And what happens over time, the longer this game you know, exists in India, the more it becomes Hinduized. Already at the, in the, the Mughal times in the 16th century, we have some Indian suits being added to the Mughal suits. So you'll have these four courtly Mughal suits, which all refer to sort of the Persian court. And then on top of that, you'll have suits for Indian gods and Indian demons and beasts and snakes and so on. So it seems that early on, the game sort of started to be adapted into Hindu culture and being changed, um, being changed in a way that made it more appetizing to a Hindu player to, to play it. Did um, did kings and queens, so to speak, like the royalties in India, did they play this game? Yes, the 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 royalty certainly did play the game. Um, this was a game that was found uh, both at court and and outside court, and as as often happens uh, in in at Indian courts, is that you have the Indian courts. They reflect the games that are being played by the populace at large. And they usually play sort of the, the simpler versions of the games. And then often at court, you find these games being sort of elaborated upon and being enlarged and being made more complex and more beautiful. 
I guess because they have more time at court um, and um, they have more leisure hours. So these games become sort of little sort of artistic um, representations of legend and myth and religion and so on and so forth uh, that are being played with. So there's always this discrepancy between what's being played at court and what's being played outside court. But um, they're very often the same games, just in slightly different modes and in, in different different quality. But this year has definitely been a very popular popular game um, that's been played all over India. But as I said before, right from the beginning, because the 16th century was not only when the Mughals arrived in India, it was also when the Portuguese arrived in India, and they brought with them Portuguese playing cards. That is the classical uh, European playing cards that we know today. So right from the beginning, there was a competition between the round Ganjifa cards of India and the rectangular um, European playing cards. And, well, Ganjifa playing cards can also be rectangular, um, but... uh, in the typical folk Indian version, they're, they're always round. But I heard that there was a, um, a Maharaja that was a really serious Ganjifa player. Yes, you must be thinking of Maharaja Krishnawaja the Third. Thank you for pronouncing that for me. He was uh, the Maharaja in the royal, uh, in the princely state of Mysore. And he was only five years old in 1799 when he was put on the throne. And he ruled um, for almost 70 years. And for most of that time, he was really just sort of a crown figure. And really, the state was being ruled by the British. Uh, But, you know, uh, he got to keep his palace and he got to keep his you know, vast staff and all his horses and elephants and regalia and vast sums of money as well. And, you know, when you're in that situation, uh, it can go sort of one of two ways. Either you sort of descend into drunken debauchery uh, or you make something useful out of your time. And we have both scenarios happening in India with different Maharajas. But Krishnaraja here, uh, he really devoted his time to learning to knowledge to music to language to mathematics to astronomy to all sorts of different things and wrote huge encyclopedic works uh, on on, on different subjects but one of his favorite pastimes was games so he was and he was not just an avid game player he was also an avid game designer and actually if you visit his palace today the jagan mohan palace in mysore and you go upstairs and you ask uh, whoever is, is, is sitting there, the watchman, um, if you can you know, be allowed into the inner chamber uh, upstairs, you'll find a chamber where the walls are completely painted with murals of the games that he designed. And it is said that he sat in that room surrounded by images of his own games and designed more games. And he designed all sorts of games, um, many uh, puzzles, many board games, and also a vast variety of Ganjifa games, that is, Ganjifa variants. And as often happens at court, as I said before, he would expand upon existing uh, games. So with the Ganjifa cards, for example, I mean, one of the decks that he created was a deck with uh, 20 suits with 18 cards in each suit and six court cards in each uh, of the suits with various capabilities and various rules for when they should be played and 
what happened when you play them and what they could be used for. And these games were so vast and so complicated that we don't know if they were ever really played. Perhaps they play-tested them a little bit with a few select members from court. But uh, I suspect that, you know, it would be difficult for Krishna Raja to really find playing partners for many of these games. And certainly they never became uh, popular in the public. And thus the main reason that we know about them are cards that are still kept at the palace and then the uh, manuscripts that were written about the games that uh, Krishna Raja designed. Interesting. Sounds like he had a good life. Yes, I mean he was—he's definitely sort of the the game nerd par excellence uh, <laughs> among Indian royalty uh, of any time. I think. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I was thinking, what what was the purpose of playing Ganjifa? Was it social? Was it religious? Was it for gambling? What was the function of playing these with these cards? Well, again, uh, most games in India can be played in different modes depending on which context you play them in. A game like Ganjifa can be played as a, as a pastime to while away time, uh, or it can be played for gambling purposes. There's no real indication that Ganjifa was ever really a religious game. It has a lot of religious imagery, and that is to make the cards beautiful, and we also have some references in text to playing Ganjifa and how it is meritorious in itself to play Ganjifa because of the imagery on the cards. And we have a text, for example, that says like just the fact that you are playing with these cards and saying, oh, my Vishnu incarnation uh, conquered your Vishnu incarnation or something. That in itself is meritorious because you're invoking the name of the god as you play. But as many of these sort of Brahminical exercises in, in, in justifying behavior that isn't otherwise allowed, uh, it probably wasn't, you know, uh, at the fore of most people's minds when they were playing these games. But um, playing for money, was that something that these cards were used for? They were definitely also used for gambling purposes, uh, definitely. And especially when you see the the prevalence that there must have been of these really cheap paper sets of cards uh, that would have been just like made very cheap and just uh, played with properly until they were completely torn. Um, you, you could uh, you could really see that being played for money. And it's it's a tough game really, I think, to play for money because it has often this inbuilt mechanic that you're going to sort of, it's kind of snowballs. So when you win a round of cards, the loser has to give the winner uh, some of their cards and the winner gives back their own worst cards. So the more rounds you play, sort of the worse the loser's cards become and the more difficult it becomes from one who has begun to lose to actually start winning. Um, so it's really a game that can spiral out of control and just end with someone completely dominating all the cards. Um, but an, an interesting an interesting story in that regard is that it is said that Ganjifa, when made from the cloth cards, like the cards that they were, the material they were made from in Bishnupur, uh, where I find them, that they were said to be um, everlasting. That when you had, when one of these sets were made, it could never be destroyed. You could play with them forever. And the reason was, it is said, that the card makers, they would sort of send their lowly servants 
to the cremation grounds. And there they would cut out pieces of cloth from the cloth that the bodies that were being burnt there was wearing and that had not been consumed by the flames. And they would use that cloth for the cards. So the cards would actually be made from the cloth of dead people, which would ensure the longevity of the cards because, you know, the person had already died. So in a sense, this cloth was sort of everlasting uh, and, and immortal. That is hardcore. <laughs> uh, I've heard that uh, Ganjifa cards were given as gifts in weddings. Is that correct? Yes, uh, Ganjifa cards seem to have been a popular wedding gift as part of the dowry uh, that you would give, that the, the bride's family uh, would give um, a set of Ganjifa cards. And again, because the material from which you make them and the art with which they are made differs so widely, it can be, you know, you could get like a very cheap pack or you can go out and you could order sort of this beautiful, fantastic uh, Ganjifa set depending on, on, on your wealth. We even have uh, an example of a Maharaja in um, Rajasthan, I believe it is, in Western India, who for his wedding had a special uh, Ganjifa set made just for his wedding guests. So uh, when the wedding guests would show up, they would each get a set of Ganjifa cards and they would then carry images from the history of the state and the rule of this Maharaja and all his ancestors. So you kind of sort of learn the whole history of this Maharaja when you came to his wedding. And I think that was printed in a uh, hundred copies or something like that. So, But that would be sort of the most lavish extremes of how to use these cards in, in weddings. Wow. I want to get this as a gift if I ever get married. <laughs> um, Pachisi, which in Sweden is commonly known as Fia McNuff or Ludo throughout Europe, it started as an Indian game, Pachisi. And as I understand it, the, the British, they brought it to Europe. Uh, Ganjifa never seemed to have made, it seemed to never made it outside of, uh, I take it again. Uh, it seems like uh, Ganjifa cards barely became popular outside of India. Um, even though India was controlled by Great Britain for hundreds of years. Uh, why is that, do you think? Well... Ganjifa cards, there's sort of sort of an odd dock among card games. And part of that has to do with their shape. I mean, they're round. Um, it's, it's very difficult to manage a hand of round cards. And they have no indices. So there's no like one point on the card where you can see this is the value of the card and this is the suit of the card. You have to look at the whole card in order to sort of count how many gold coins are on this card. And the decks in Ganjifa, as I said, can be very large. So say you're playing the Dash, the Dash Avatar game, the 10 Avatars of Vishnu game, you'll have 120 cards. They'll be distributed among three players. Each player will have 40 cards in their hand. That's like 40 big round cards full of symbols. And you have to navigate through that. So just the handling of the card is, is really not intuitive. Um, and... On top of that comes the fact that Ganjifa, as I said before, is really a game of memory more than it's a game of skill in the way that we know it from Western cards. See, if you're playing um, with Western-style cards, normally you will have, for example, a trump suit that can always uh, win over whatever other suit is being played. Uh, in Ganjifa, there is no trump suit, so all suits are, so to speak, equal. 
And also, when you're playing with your Western set of cards, when you play a card, you sort of get to decide which card you want to play. In Ganjifa, it's kind of programmed into the game that if you have the highest card in a suit, you have to play that card. So there is a lot less wriggle room when it comes to strategy. There is strategy, but the strategy mostly hinges on being able to remember all the cards that have been played. And sometimes, even when you deal the cards, some of the cards that you deal will be dealt face up. So they just face up for a few seconds. So you can take in what every player is getting, and then they're going face down and being hidden in the hands of of the players. So I think this feeling that it's a game that doesn't have skill in the way that we perceive skill normally in the West, which is this more ability to strategize and rationalize and come up with a good tactic to win over the opponent. No, Ganjifa is, is, is a memory-based game, which in a sense sort of really rides on the coattails of Indian culture in general, because Indian culture is primarily an oral culture, and it was a culture whose holy texts were always transmitted orally, and they were committed to memory. So the best thing that you could be in India was someone who was able to memorize one or more of the Vedas or the holy scriptures uh, in, in Indian literature. So it makes sense that you would base a game upon the skill of memory, which was considered a skill uh, in the same way that we might be consider you know the ability to uh, logically solve a difficult puzzle uh, that we might consider a skill whereas memory you know it's 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 nice to be able to have to have a good memory and remember thing but it's just probably not have the same status that it has in the indian culture and certainly to make a whole game that's just based on the concept of memory um, is just more alien to us i think it seems to be a hard game it's 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 a hard game for for someone who doesn't have like very perfect photographic memory um and i don't i don't think that's something that we really cultivate in fact it seems that we're uh, outsourcing our memory yeah <laughs> to maybe machines. maybe digital ganjifa can be a good is that the future uh, well you know uh, as, but you you'd have to have something on your app that made sure that you weren't able to to track everything that was being played or otherwise everybody would sit with the same information and it might be very boring what do you think is the future of ganjifa will this tradition die out in india and then it will just be museum objects unfortunately i i think that is what is happening and um when i met sital uh, fushtar here last winter it was sort of an emotional moment to stand before someone who was representing an art that has been in existence for hundreds of years in India and telling me now how he couldn't even get his own son to continue the tradition and paint the cards. And that just tells me that there is really no market for these cards anymore except as tourist objects, museum pieces. And since we we cannot keep the cards alive, I mean, hopefully we can still keep the knowledge about the cards alive because they are an important part of, of playing card history and there are exquisite and unusual objects um, which, which really uh, deserve all the attention they can get even if we cannot get modern people to, to play them anymore. Um, we actually sell these Kanjifa cards um, in the museum shop 
And um, I was actually responsible for finding the rules for these cards. And I encountered all these complicated rules that you described. I looked into the academic literature and it was super duper confusing. Um, but I did find some simplified rules from uh, a company that at least claimed to be based in India, where the rules were uh, yeah, half an A4 sheet, very simplified. Am I cheating by doing this? Well, the history of games in India is a movement from complexity to simplicity. And most Indian games originate in extreme complexity. And then over time, when they become adapted and uh, they travel to other countries, they undergo processes of simplification. So games like Chopard or Pachisi becoming Ludo um, in the West, a uh, game like Gyan Chopard becoming Snakes and Ladders in the West. These are games with have very complex um, mechanics or themes that are then simplified and made available for a larger audience in the West. So, you know, following that recipe, you might see an argument that uh, a game like Ganjitha, which is as you experience yourself, like a really complicated, if you're trying to get into all the nitty gritty of the rules, that you could make a simplified version and then present it to a modern audience. And and yeah, maybe there would, there would be a chance of, of surviving like that because they're really pretty cards. All right, Jacob. Thank you for an interesting conversation. It was fun to having you here and spreading some knowledge about these uh, Gandhifa cards and make them maybe survive into the future. Let's hope so. Thank you. You're welcome. You have been listening to Inside the Box. The podcast is produced by the Museum of World Culture and the Center for Critical Heritage Studies at the University of Gothenburg in collaboration with Folkuniversitetet. For more information about today's episode and pictures of the featured object, please visit the podcast page on ACAST. Thank you for listening. <laughs>